Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. Uh, they shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this morning, let's make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are indeed grateful for all that you have provided for us, especially what you have revealed to us in your word, that it is by your word that we understand things to be the way they are, and it's on the basis of your doctrine that we learn to walk consistently in the light of your word, walk, walking consistent with reality. Father, we continue to pray for our nation that in this war against terrorism that we might be victorious, that you would give uh, our leaders' wisdom in the decisions that they make and the strategies that they uh, adopt. Father, we pray that you would give skill to those who are in the uh, business of security and intelligence that they might be able to uh, pick out the information that is pertinent to any sort of attack upon this nation. Father, we can pr- continue to pray, those from, pray for those from this congregation who are serving in the military and those who are uh, e- e- uh, serving in Iraq in a civilian capacity, that you would watch over them, uh, keep them safe, and they might be an effective and faithful uh, testimony to your grace. Now, Father, as we study your word today, may we be faithful in our use, study, and application of your word, that we might recognize that we have a tremendous treasure here, and this treasure is uh, for us to use on a daily basis, and we need to let the mind of Christ become our own thinking. Now, Father, we pray that we would respond to this challenge today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. One announcement that I did forget, uh, you all know that every year at Labor Day, North Stonington Bible Church has a conference, Labor Day, and Memorial Day. And this year, the Labor Day speaker is going to be Charlie Clough. So I know we all enjoy listening to Charlie, and he's doing a study on Deuteronomy. And that should be a fascinating study. Charlie's always had a tremendous grasp of the Old Testament. I think when I started listening to Charlie back when uh, I was thinking about going to seminary, I was just out of college, uh, that's one thing that impressed me and challenged me to go on and study uh, old, the Old Testament, a major in Hebrew and Old Testament studies, was because I realized from his teaching that you can't understand the New Testament if you don't have a firm grip on the Old Testament. And you've heard me say that many times, and now you know where I got it. That's the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey says. So make sure you plan to go over there. That starts Saturday morning. And I think they have meals over there at noon, right, right, uh, Dave, noon on, uh, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Put, call over there and let them know that you're going to be there if you're going to stay for, for meals. Okay, open your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and we're going to pick up where we left off last, uh, last Sunday morning, and that is to look at an important doctrine that undergirds what's going on in the 
in verses 5 through 12. Now let me read through those verses and just orient us with a little review of what they say. But there's something that's happening underneath this that's important for each of us to understand and something that hits every one of us on a day-to-day basis, and that's the process of planning and decision-making and what happens when we make one plan and then things, uh, circumstances don't work out and we have to go to plan B or plan C or for many of us, you know, we're down around plan S and T squared. So uh, P- Paul gets that way on occasion, but what is his process for decision-making? And last time I looked over at passages in Acts uh, 17, 18, where we saw him on his uh, second missionary journey. And on his second missionary journey, I pointed out that he intended to go into the province of Asia, which is on the westernmost uh, coast of Turkey. And yet the, the Scripture tells us the Holy Spirit prevented him. Well, how did that happen? We don't know. Was it through circumstances? Was it through special divine revelation? Uh, what was it? We don't know. Then he decided to swing north and west, or north and east, and go into the province of Bithynia. Once again, his way was blocked, but we don't know how. God works to guide and direct us, by circumstances sometimes. Today, he does not communicate to us through divine revelation. When it comes to the subject of divine guidance and decision-making and determining the will of God for our lives, too many people think that somehow God speaks to us through a still, small voice. You've heard that, especially if you've been in a Baptist church. But you see, that's special revelation. That is God speaking God doesn't speak today in any way other than through His Word. He doesn't give you the heebie-jeebies. He doesn't speak through liver quiver. He doesn't give you some kind of a, you know, a special insight into decisions. It's based upon an application of His Word and the doctrine that you've got in your soul. And I pointed out last time that there's a couple of different ways that you normally hear divine guidance and decision-making and the will of God taught. One is that God has a right decision for you in every way. In fact, if we were to graph that up here on the, on the overhead, we could draw a circle, and this circle would include all the various possible options that you have in life or in a given situation. And then they'll say right here is living. We'll put a dot right in the center of that circle. And that's living in the center of God's will. And in every decision, you've got to find the center of God's will in that decision in life. Well, how far do you press it? Something I raised last time, does that mean that when you wake up in the morning, you have to say, you have to stop and pray and say, Lord, do I wear blue jeans or khakis today? Am I going to put my left shoe on first or my right shoe on first? Well, we all know that many decisions that we make in life uh, ultimately hinge on very minor decisions. One of the things that I found fascinating in studying history is how many major circumstances in, in life have hinged on some extremely minor decision. Battles have been won or lost based on minor circumstances, minor decisions. Someone makes a decision that seems inconsequential, and yet it changes the course of a battle, changes the course of an election changes the course of history. So how far do we push this issue of deciding the will of God? Where does God's overriding sovereignty fit into the picture? And where does our own personal responsibility and volition enter into the picture? See, if God has a specific decision for us or a specific choice for us in every situation, and we believe that God always has that, always has a geographical will for us. That means that if you get up in the morning and decide to take uh, Route 12 instead of 395, then you're outside of God's will. And then if you have an accident or get a speeding ticket, well, if you've got a speeding ticket, you're probably out of the will anyway. <laughs> speeding. But if something happened, you had a flat tire, then you might say, oh, well, God's punishing me because I made the wrong decision. I'm on Route 12 instead of 395. You see, I'm just pointing out the absurdity 
of this position. Now, that's not to say that God doesn't have, at times in our lives, a geographical will. He obviously did for Paul. But remember, how did Paul know that? He knew it by special revelation. At least it seems that way in some passages. Can't say for sure on the issue of his going into Asia or his going into Bithynia, but God definitely had a specific plan for him, and that was to go into Europe, to cross over to Greece. But did that extend to whether Paul should walk, uh, which boat he was to get on, uh, which port he would sail to? See, Thessaloniki is also a port, or was also a port. Neapolis was a port. That's where Paul sailed when he went there. There were other ports. There were ports in Athens. Why didn't he just hop a ship and go to Athens? So what what went into these decisions? And I think that what went into these decisions was Paul's wisdom operating from the doctrine in his own soul. That's why he made a choice. God had, or Jesus Christ had commanded the disciples to go into all nations. They were to go from, from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and then to the othermost part of the world. And God had commissioned Paul to be an apostle to the Gentiles. But he didn't say, you're going to take four missionary trips, and the first one's going to be to Crete and south-central Turkey, and the next one's going to be to uh, Greece, and the third one's going to back that up, and the fourth one's going to be to Rome. He didn't say that. He didn't give Paul, as we'll see later on in this chapter, that Paul wants to go, wanted to go to Illyricum, which is uh, sort of, uh, I really get confused at this point, I hate it when countries break up. You don't know what's what anymore. But it's sort of around the area of uh, what, Yugoslavia on the coast of, on the uh, sort of north, uh, that'd be northwest of Greece. I don't know if that's Serbia or Croatia or Albania or what it is anymore. But you know the general area of uh, uh, what had been Yugoslavia. But we don't know whether Paul made it there or not, but he wanted to go there. So he was looking at this overall command that God gave him, and he was asking the question, how can I best carry this out? So after he made his first missionary journey, he planted churches in uh, south-central Turkey and Derby and Iconium and Lystra. He knew from wisdom, from what he understood from the Old Testament, that it was a good idea to go back to those churches to make sure they were doing okay, to see how the leaders were doing, to, to uh, engage in some follow-up. So he did that. They were doing okay, and he met a young man named Timothy and, and saw that he had some, some potential. And so he made a choice to take Timothy with him. Now, we know that Paul would have prayed about these choices. Paul was applying Scripture to these choices. Jesus had said that it was important to teach others and to train others as he had trained the apostles. And so Paul is applying wisdom to this situation. Was God the Holy Spirit speaking to him, telling him, you need to take Timothy with you? Now, I think this was the normal function that, that you see operative today, that, that certain men exhibit a certain interest, and you can see that they have the gift of pastor-teacher, and they, des- they, they have a desire to be trained, and so you provide that, that opportunity for them as, as God gives you those kinds of opportunities, or gives a pastor those kinds of opportunities. And then Paul said, okay, where do I go next that will be effective? Well, Asia was populous. It was a uh, Roman province. There were populous cities there, such as Ephesus. That seemed to be a very wise decision. So Paul decided to go to Asia, but the Holy Spirit stopped him. Now, this is critical in our understanding of the geographical will of God because there are times when God wants us certain places, and there are times when he doesn't want us certain places. But there are other times when it really isn't that consequential. God doesn't have a specific plan. And God did have a specific plan in this situation. He wanted Paul to get into, uh, go into Greece. So Paul went that way and he went on uh, to Macedonia, then down to Achaia, to Corinth, and then uh, he went back to Ephesus, briefly touched on the coast, then went on back to Jerusalem, uh, uh, came back, gave a report to the home church at Antioch of Syria, and then he went back, and he's, a, he's writing Corinthians from Ephesus. When he went back to Ephesus, which was the... At this point, we're not sure. It changed a couple of times in the, in the first century, and I'm not sure. I haven't seen uh, anything that gives definite dates as to when it shifted. But Ephesus was a major, major city. Ephesus and, and uh, Pergamum 
were major, major cities, and they vied for ascendancy in the province of Asia. For the first part of the century, uh, Pergamon was the capital. The latter part, Ephesus, was the capital. But Paul went to Ephesus, population of probably 200, 250,000 people. And Acts tells us that he had a tremendous ministry in Asia, and the gospel went out from there into all of Asia. So you see, it's not that God didn't want the gospel getting there. The timing wasn't right, and he blocked Paul the first time, and then uh, Paul was able to fulfill that mission the second time. So you see, even though Paul wanted to do make, make a choice A, or had made choice A, because God didn't want him to do that, do that at that time, Paul didn't have to worry about spending the rest of his life in Asia outside of the will of God. Why? Because, and this is the principle, if God specifically wants you in a geographical location, God is going to get you there one way or the other. Even if you start off making the wrong choices. God wants you in California and you decide to go to Florida, something will happen to prevent you from going to Florida. That is, especially if you are in, in, in the will of God, in the sense of you're being, you're in fellowship, you're, the motivation for your decision is a, uh, motivation that's based on spiritual absolutes and you want to glorify God in your life, you want to make the right decisions and serve God, God's not going to, uh, let you make decision A when He wants you in, in decision B. He'll block it. In some way, the issue in most decision making, as we'll see, is going is the test of application. How are you going to take what you've learned, the doctrine that's in your soul, and how are you going to apply it? God's not concerned with some sort of hidden shell game, and He's hiding up in the cosmos somewhere, uh, hiding a pea under a walnut shell, moving things around, saying, "Well, if you can guess my will." then uh, you're okay, but if you make the wrong decision, oops, you've messed up the rest of your life. doesn't operate that way, as we'll see. So <clears throat> Paul gives us some, uh, some indications of this. In this chapter, he says, verse 5, Now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia. See, he had a plan. We saw this last time. His plan was to leave Ephesus uh, during the summer, go up to Macedonia, come down through Greece, traveling from north to south, and then end up in Corinth and winter in Corinth. But as we also saw last time, his plans had to change. Because of the situation in Corinth, he decided to that he better make a quick trip over to Corinth, and that's revealed in First Second uh, Corinthians 1, or at least there's a suggestion that he's been there. We don't really have a record of this trip. We just have an indication that between the second and third missionary journeys or between the, the time he wrote 1 Corinthians and the time he uh, actually left to go up to Macedonia, he made a quick trip to Corinth, and just aggra- and the situation just got worse. The people were hostile to him and uh, treated him with a lack of respect, and there's no excuse for that, but then these are the carnal Corinthians. So he changed his plans. Why? Because he felt like the situation, he believed the situation demanded his personal attention based on the doctrine in his soul. We're not told that there was any special revelation in that way at all. And he explains those plans in verses 6 and 7. And then he says in verse 8, But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost. Why? What's the basis for his timing? Could be weather, Pentecost, by the time of Pentecost in late May or early June. The uh, summer's clearly set in. The uh, sailing uh, conditions are better. Traveling conditions are better. And that could be it. He's not uh, emphasizing Pentecost in terms of any sort of religious observance. He's using it much the same way we'd say, we would say, well, I'm going to stay here until Labor Day, and then, uh, then I'm going to take a little vacation. Now, it's not that we're emphasizing Labor Day per se. We're just emphasizing the fact that, that the calendar shifts a little bit at that time and we get into uh, more of a, uh, an autumn after that. In verse 9, he says, For a great and effective door has opened to me. We saw that last time in Acts, Acts 18, that, that they were sending out many uh, church planters, pastors, missionaries throughout Asia. But there are many adversaries, and we ended up with that last time talking about the uh, the riot that occurred in Ephesus, 
as a result of the instigation of Demetrius and the silversmiths because uh, Paul's gospel preaching was cutting into their idolatrous business. They were making these little idols of uh, Artemis, who was the uh, patron goddess of Ephesus. And they made these little idols and sold them, and they had a tremendous business because all the tourists were coming to Ephesus to see the temple of Artemis. And Artemis of the Ephesians was alleged to perform many miracles, so people would come, and they were caught up in this mystical religious observance. And uh, there was this tremendous riot. The people wanted to have Paul thrown in jail and destroyed. But the city fathers, the Asiarchs, protected Paul, uh, quelled the riot, and Paul's ministry continued. Verse 10, he says, And if Timothy comes, he's already sent Timothy, and it should be understood when Timothy comes. The if indicates uncertainty as to when he would arrive. He had already been sent. By this time, Timothy is up in the area of uh, Philippi or Thessalonica. Timothy, come see that he may be with you without fear, for he does the work of the Lord as I also do. In other words, treat him with respect. The Corinthians had a real problem with respect for the uh, pastors. And they showed, in their carnality, they showed a tremendous disrespect for those who were communicating the Word of God. And there's nothing worse than Christians who don't show respect for pastors. And it's amazing how many churches get in all kinds of of, uh, situations simply because they fail to have that basic respect. It's an evidence of carnality. Verse 11, Therefore let no one despise him, but send him on his journey in peace, that he may come to me, for I am waiting for him with the brethren, that is, with the others who are traveling with Paul. Then in verse 12 he says, Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren. So Paul thinks this is a good idea for Apollos to come over there now and to follow up on this problem because he had, you know, he knew the Corinthians knew him. Apollos had been their pastor for a while. And so Paul thinks this is a great idea. But Apollos doesn't. Now, do we have an issue here? Is Paul saying, well, see, it was God's will for Apollos to come to you, but he doesn't want to. So he's out of the will of God. See, you don't find that kind of terminology here. Neither does he say, I thought Apollos should come there, but obviously it's God's will for him to stay here. You don't find that kind of terminology. See, that's the kind of terminology you'd find some uh, shallow evangelical using here, that, well, God's geographical will for Apollos was to stay in Ephesus. We don't find that kind of terminology. What we see is that Paul recognizes that Apollos legitimately and validly makes a decision, probably based on wisdom, that Apollos is saying, look, I have an effective ministry here in Ephesus right now. It's not a good time for me to leave and go to uh, Corinth. And so Paul says he was quite unwilling to come at this time However, he will come when he has a convenient time. So he's obviously involved in a ministry that he couldn't pull himself out of, didn't think it was wise to make that move. So what's underneath all of this is the use of wisdom and the doctrine in a person's soul to make decisions as opposed to this model that I need to pray about every decision and... um, and seek God's perfect will. You'll hear that kind of terminology. God's perfect will for every decision. And what I'm saying is God may not. I'm not saying God doesn't. God may not have a specific choice, A, B, or C, in every decision. There are some when I think He clearly does. And He he moves circumstances providentially to make it clear to us where we should go. I remember when... I came up here some, what, six, almost seven years ago to, to candidate. Last thing I had on my mind was moving to Connecticut. Now, that wasn't in my plan A, B, or C. I got a letter from Bryce, and Bryce uh, t- said the situation. I called up Bryce, and I said, well, I'm not really interested. And he just sort of begged and pleaded that we don't have anybody teaching, so we need somebody to come up here. Just come up for a week and have a conference. Okay. Okay, well, that sounds good. We'll have a little vacation combined with that, and we'll come up. I had two weeks' vacation coming at Christmas, and I didn't have any plans, so that seemed like a good thing to do. 
So I did. See, I'm not saying, oh, is this God's will? just seemed like a wise choice, opportunity to use my spiritual gift. So I came up here, and I kept thinking, you know, I'm not sure I really want to move to Connecticut, but that's a great congregation, and they need a pastor. Whoever ends up there, well, that's a, that's a, they're going to have a great congregation. So I went back to Houston. In fact, told several people because I couldn't figure out how the logistics would work told several people that, well, that's a great congregation, but I don't think that's where the Lord's leading me. And then before, while the deacons were trying to figure out how to put together the, the offer, an ad appeared in the Norwich Bulletin that the Norwich School District was looking for an elementary ed teacher, certified elementary ed teacher that was bilingual, and they wanted to hire this teacher in the middle of the spring semester. Now, that's virtually unheard of for teachers. And that was a critical element in the logistics of moving, was that uh, Pam could get a job here. So everything just fell together. And it was clear. As soon as I saw that ad, I knew. Now, she took a little, she took a little convincing. But as soon as I saw that ad, I knew she was going to apply. We had, I think there was five days left before the deadline for application. And we got all the information faxed up on the fifth day. And they called her up on the telephone, had an interview, hour-long interview on the telephone, and called her up a week later and hired her sight unseen. Now, it just doesn't seem to me that that happens that frequently. And it was just obvious that the Lord was opening that door of ministry. So that pretty much made that decision. So I felt like that, that was clear. There are other times in life when it hasn't been that clear. And I think the issue was more how was I going to go about the process of making the decision than what it ultimately would, would uh, end up being. So let's get into the doctrine of the will of God. First point on the doctrine of the will of God. The term will of God relates to three aspects of divine divine volition in relation to his creation. When we find the term will of God in the scripture, it relates to one of three different aspects of God's volition in relation to his creation. Now, what you normally think of when you hear the term will of God is because you're taught to think subjectively and in self-absorption as a as a as an American in our self-absorbed, psycho-babalized society, what you think immediately when you hear the will of God is, what's God's will for me? See how subjective and self-absorbed that is? But that's, that's how we think. But that's only one aspect of, of the will of God. Now, there, when we're younger, we often have more decisions related to the will of God than when we're older. Because the decisions that you're making between between the ages of 15 and 25 or 30 set the course of your life. Are you going to go to college or not? Well, even earlier than that, in high school, am I going to apply myself and make good grades so I can go to a good school and get a good education, which then gives me better options later on in life? Or am I just going to kind of go with the flow and uh, just just get by and see what happens? And so those are the kinds of decisions that you're, you're making then that set the course for your life. Who are your friends? Who do you allow to influence you in terms of your values? Who are you going to go out with in terms of dating? Are you just going to date anybody, or do they have to meet certain qualifications in terms of their spiritual life? Those are crucial decisions. And uh, you go through college, and you you meet somebody, and you, you fall in love and get married, and and who knows how that's going to turn out. I mean, none of us do. You go through college. Where are you going to go to college? What are you going to major in? Who are you going to study with? How are you going to study? Are you going to work? You know, all these different decisions. And then after you get out, or if you don't go to college, the kind of job you, you select, where are you going to live? All of these determine many things that will happen the rest of your life. And some of the consequences from those decisions that you make when you're 20 or 22 don't come home to roost until you're 70 or 80. And that's, that's what happens to a lot of people. They say they hit 70 or 80 and they have certain problems, health problems perhaps, or financial problems. They say, how can God let this happen to, to me? Well, if we knew all the facts, maybe we could trace it back to some bad decisions that were made when you were 20 years old or that you continue to make from that age on. See, we, we, we 
tend to make the most crucial decisions when we don't have the wisdom in our soul yet to to know what's wise. That's why it's important for you parents to be instilling doctrine into your children at, from a young age. It's because starting about 12 or 13, they're going to start making decisions independently of you, whether you like it or not, whether you know about it or not. So the earlier you get that doctrine instilled in their soul, the better it is for them. We have to recognize the principle that bad decisions or wrong decisions limit future options. Down the road, you may not have so many good options to make because of earlier bad decisions. On the other hand, good decisions based on doctrine expand options further down the road. They give you better options in the future. Okay, what are these three aspects of divine volition under point one? First, we have God's sovereign volition with regard to his creation. This is where he brings to pass what he wills and what he has decreed. Sometimes it's called God's decretive will. This is God's plan and purpose for history. We don't know what it is. Sometimes you'll hear people refer to this as the secret counsel of his will. We don't know what it is. In God's sovereign will, he includes, uh, it includes his permissive will. He allows for his creatures to make sinful choices and bad decisions. As part of his sovereign will, he allowed Adam to disobey him in the garden. That was God's sovereign will. But that's not his moral will. That's the second category. His moral will. God's moral will is sometimes called His revealed will. His revealed will was, Thou shalt not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was His revealed will or His moral will. His sovereign will was that He allowed Adam to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So His moral will is not identical with His sovereign will. And then the third category of his will is his overriding will. And in God's overriding will, he allows us to make decisions. We disobey him, but in his grace, he overrides the consequences of those wrong decisions. There may be many aspects to this. For example, David wanted to build a temple. He did a lot towards that end, but God overrode that decision. He recognized David's uh, decision and desire to build the temple, and I think he honored David because of that, but he didn't allow David to do that. I think the same thing happens. We saw this in our study of giving a few weeks ago, is that sometimes we would like to give financially to support certain ministries, But God just hasn't given us the wherewithal. We support them at whatever level we can, but we would really, really like to be able to do more. Well, God recognizes that and honors that, but he's not going to uh, perhaps prosper us so that we can do that. At one time, Paul wanted to go to Rome, but God intervened. Another time, he wanted to go to Jerusalem instead of Rome, and God wanted him to go to Rome, so God had to intervene, get Paul arrested, and taken in chains to Rome. That was part of God's overriding will. When we make bad decisions and make choice A, sometimes, especially if we're stubborn with choice A, and God wants us to make choice B, sometimes he has to do some difficult things to override that and to get us back where we're supposed to be. Okay, that's the first point. The will of God relates to three aspects of divine will. Uh, His sovereign will, which includes everything he's decreed to come to pass, including his permissive will. His moral will. and Third, his overriding will. Second point has to do with the key verses for this. Key verses. Let's look at some of them. Daniel 4.35 states, And all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. But he, that is God, does according to his will in the host of heaven, that's the angels, and among the inhabitants of earth, that's human beings. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What hast thou done? This refers to God's sovereign will. He runs history according to his own choice. 
Proverbs 21, 1. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. This is God's overriding will. He allows us to make certain decisions in his permissive will, but ultimately God is going to bring about that which he uh, has chosen. It doesn't matter. In one sense, this is a great comfort. It doesn't matter in one sense who gets elected. Now, we may be depressed. This may be a good year to test your faith rest drill in relation to politics. Uh, In some sense, it doesn't matter who gets elected. And frankly, no matter who gets elected, you're going to be disappointed at some level. So don't base your happiness on a political party. In fact, let me just say a couple of things about politics. This may shock some of you, but there's no political party that is biblical. Not one of them. The Democrats aren't, the Republicans aren't, the Libertarians aren't, the Greenies aren't, the Environmentalists aren't, on all, all the other little parties. None of them have a biblical foundation for their platform. Not one of them. In fact, if I had the time and wanted to do so, I could decimate every one of them. It's easy because these platforms... And their general philosophy was put together on the basis of autonomous empiricism and rationalism. And there are major flaws in each of them. So if that's true, what do you do if you're a believer? Well, see, what you do as a believer, first of all, is you have to understand divine establishment and the divine institutions. You have to understand how they function in terms of society. You have uh, human uh, volition and responsibilities of first divine institution. That you have to look at a party, look at a candidate and say, okay, do they generally uh, support legislation that emphasizes personal responsibility and accountability and decision-making, or do they try to uh, let the government take that over from the individual? Second, you have second divine institution of marriage. Oh, that's a big issue today. See, this is going to be the big fight over the next four or five years is, going, is this whole issue of uh, same-sex marriage, homosexual marriage. Is that legitimate? Well, no, it's not. God defined what marriage is. Man doesn't. Marriage isn't something that that was developed as a as an institution to to uh, deal with circumstances in life. That's the evolutionary framework. But if you're a Christian, marriage is between a man and a woman, and you have to be you have to uphold that. And so the candidates that uphold that. Take a strong stand or that are those that are important. This is the issue today. Now, if you get all upset about some other issue. Now, there's some other issues, I think, that are right up there in the top three or four, but there are other issues that aren't. And if you get all upset about some other issue, let's say, let's pick a nice hotbed issue. Let's take the issue of abortion. You know, there's a lot of evangelicals that that becomes the, the, the litmus test for who they're going to vote for. But let's say you have a candidate that you don't agree with on their abortion position, but they take a strong stand for marriage. Well, because your litmus test is how they view abortion, you vote on that basis. Well, see, the battle today is not on abortion. The battle today is on over marriage. That's one of three or four major battles today. So it, you need to vote in terms of where the battle is and not what you think is important. And it's very, and that, that's the mark of somebody who understands objectivity in history and politics. And it may not be the candidate that you really like. They may have some other positions that you don't care about. Frankly, every one of them does. I don't think there's been a time in my life when there's been a president, even if I really liked them, that didn't do some things that I did not agree with. There's always going to be that. But you have to pick the best option, and sometimes the best option is merely the individual that's going to slow down the speed of our decline rather than reverse it. Every every party, every party has major problems. So don't get caught up in thinking that the election of any given individual is somehow going to reverse the course of history, save everything. God is the one who controls history, and whoever is in the White House is still under the sovereign will of God in relationship to history. And what's going on historically right now, I think, has more to do with Israel and setting things up for the future tribulation than it has to do with what's going on right now at the end of the church age. 
Now, I could be wrong there because I'm clearly making assumption that we're near the end of the church age and the, and the tribulation isn't that far off. But it seems like more and more issues today turn and hinge on people's attitudes towards Israel and that affects everything. Now, I think that's, a, that's an important issue that has to be right up there with a candidate's view on marriage. Is what's their view on Israel? And do they support Israel? That doesn't mean you agree with everything that, that, uh, Israel does. You don't have to back every policy or every decision. But today the, the new anti-Semitism is being cloaked and camouflaged in sort of an anti-Zionism. That I can be pro-Semitic and anti-Israel. No, you can't. They go together. But God is the one who controls history. Okay, another passage. Revelation 4.1. This is at the, this passage actually is talking about the beginning of the, um, uh, rapture, uh, at the beginning of the tribulation. John is looking at the vision that he sees and he writes, after these things I looked, and behold, the door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Now, the, as we'll see when we get there, this first voice which I heard like the sound of a trumpet is the Lord Jesus Christ. That goes back to, I think it's Revelation 1.9. And in 1.9, Paul, Paul, I mean, John says, I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, uh, write these things which you have seen you, which, and uh, send them to the seven churches that are in Asia. He lists the seven churches and then he says in, I think it's about verse 10 or 11, I turned to look at the voice that spoke to me and when I turned I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the seven lampstands one like the Son of Man clothed in a garment down to the feet. So who's talking? It's the Son of Man which is the Lord Jesus Christ. So Revelation 4.1, this is the Lord Jesus Christ who says, come up here. And I will show you what must take place after these things. So this is sovereign will. You don't have a choice. Come up here. It's not a, an option for John. Ephesians 1.1, we're told, We also have obtained an inheritance, having been, been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. This is God's sovereign will. Predestined is not a term that means that each individual is uh, predestined specifically in relation to salvation. This is not talking about that. Predestined has to do with the fact that God chooses a destiny ahead of time. And our destiny is to be heirs with Christ. And God has uh, made that destiny certain that every believer in the church age will have a destiny with Christ, and that works after His will. So that's His sovereign will. Another passage in the Old Testament, Psalm, I mean Proverbs 16.33, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Now, this is referring to a form of decision-making that was valid in the Old Testament, but not in the New Testament. So don't go home and try to cast lots for every decision. Romans 1, I mean Romans 9:19. You will say to me then, why does he find fault for who resists his will? And the implication there, aside from all the other doctrine or theology that's in Romans 9, which I don't want to get into, it's the fact that when God has a sovereign plan, we can't resist that sovereign plan. Now that still allows for our volition. Paul made a decision. He made a good decision. He said, I want to go into Asia and I want to proclaim the gospel and teach doctrine to those Greeks that are living in Asia. God said, no, you don't. See, you can't resist God's will. So Paul had moved on and wanted to go to Bithynia. God said, no, you don't. This is where you're going to go. You're going to go to Greece. So if we have our desire to serve God... He will guide and direct us. We don't have to worry about getting caught up in some sort of guessing game. Okay, the third point. The specifics of God's decreed will or the, or His sovereign will, those are synonymous terms. The specifics of God's decreed or sovereign will are secret, unrevealed, and unknown. You don't know what His sovereign will is 
until it happens. You don't know what he is working in history until it comes to pass. You can't know what that sovereign will is until after the fact. When we look at human history, after it has transpired, then we see what God's sovereign will was. So we can't find it out. You can't say, well, God, what's your sovereign will in this choice? Because remember, God's sovereign will includes sinful choices as well as uh, righteous choices. So you don't pray for God to reveal to you what His sovereign will is. Point four. Therefore, we can only know the specifics of God's revealed or moral will. When Paul wanted to go into Asia, God revealed to him that you don't go there. It wasn't immoral. It wasn't a violation of a divine command. But God revealed to him that he shouldn't go there. When Paul wanted to go to, to Jerusalem later on and still held to that, the Holy Spirit revealed to several prophets along the way that if Paul continued to pursue this objective, then he would be arrested in Jerusalem and they would put him in chains. So we can only know the specific of God's revealed will or his moral will. His moral will or, or the, the mandates of Scripture. Pray without ceasing. Witness. Uh, give to the local church. Thou shalt not commit adultery or murder, steal, commit false witness. That's God's revealed will. Those are the absolutes that are given in Scripture. For example, Romans 2.18, we know His will and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law. See, how do we know what to approve and what to reject? It's based on what's revealed in His Word. And at that time, of course, that would be the Old Testament or the law. Other things we know for sure that God has revealed to us, for example, 1 Thessalonians 5.18, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now, there's some folks down in Florida right now that are having a real struggle trying to apply this principle in a lot of, a lot of areas of their life, especially if their home is in ruins. But... The Scripture says that in everything we have to give thanks. We have to develop, and this is part of grace orientation, is having an attitude of gratitude in every situation, even when it is a, a, a situation of extreme adversity for us. Another example of, clear, of a clear statement of God's will for every believer, First Thessalonians 4, 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. It is a clear statement. Second Chronicle, I mean, Second Corinthians six fourteen. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. So right there, you have a clear statement of Scripture. It's not God's will for you to marry an unbeliever. Wow, that's something a lot of people don't teach enough today. So if, you, if it's not God's will for you to marry an unbeliever, it's not God's will for you to put yourself in a situation where you can become susceptible to marrying an unbeliever. In other words, don't run the risk of get, losing control of your emotions in a situation by starting to date an unbeliever. Get involved in a romantic relationship with an unbeliever. The bottom line is this is just going to spell a tremendous amount of self-induced misery and divine discipline. Another passage I didn't put up here, but it's a clear mandate that we are to be filled with the Spirit. So if you want to know what God's will is, first of all, you need to make sure you're in fellowship, that you're filled with the Spirit, that your desire is to obey God and to glorify Him in whatever the situation may be. Okay, that was all under point number four. We can only know the specifics of God's revealed or moral will. If you come to me and you say, well, pastor, I'm trying to decide what to do in this situation, and I just have this uh, sense of peace when I make, make this decision to move across the country or I'm going to marry so-and-so and I just have a sense of peace, well, unbelievers seem to have that same sense of peace. I don't know what that is, but there's nothing in Scripture that says having a sense of peace is an indication of divine guidance. 
You know, that's what I call liver quiver. You've just been contemplating your navel. And certainly, that a lot of times when we struggle with making a decision, once we make a decision, we have a sense of peace, simply because we're no longer struggling to make the decision. It may be a bad decision, but we've made one, and now I don't have to make a decision anymore. So you have a sense of peace. That doesn't mean that, that you're applying... Uh, Philippians 4, 5, and 6, that you have the peace that passes all understanding, so therefore this is God's will for your life. That is not what that passage is teaching. That is not a passage on divine guidance. Okay, point number five. Therefore, just to summarize what we've said so far, God's sovereign will includes His moral will, but His moral will, that is, thou shalt or thou shalt not, is not always his sovereign will. Let me say that again. Let's draw this up here on the overhead in overlapping circles. This is God's sovereign will. Okay? That includes, draw a line here, it includes his permissive will to allow sinful choices and evil And it also allows his positive righteous will. But includes both. This is his, this is the area of God's sovereign will. But then, and I think we have to draw this as a smaller, now we're going to draw it as an overlapping circle. This is his moral will. This is what he has revealed. Now there are some thou shalts and thou shalt nots that are part of, included within his sovereign will. But there are many times when you make decisions that are outside of God's moral will, but they're inside His sovereign will. They're up here under the category permissive will. So they're not identical. His moral will is not always the same as His sovereign will. Point number six. Usually we start getting concerned about the will of God when we have some sort of momentous decision to make. Oops, it's too late. You see, you don't have the doctrine in your soul that you need to make the decision. See, by the time you you get to that crunch point, you need to have a lot of doctrine in your soul. So the real issue begins with that day-to-day decision that I'm going to take in the Word of God and I'm going to make knowing the Word of God the priority in my life. Because you see, that is God's will. God's will is for you to have the mind of Christ in your soul. God's will is for you to be in fellowship. God's will is for you to make doctrine the number one priority in your life. God's will is for you, clearly stated in uh, Revelation 12 too, not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now see, if you're not doing those three things, you're making the Word of God your priority, being filled with the Spirit, and being uh, transformed and growing spiritually. If you're not doing that, then you come along and say, God, what's your will? Should I go to college or not? Should I get married or not? Should I uh, invest in this or not? It's too late. You're, you've, you've violated the foundation of decision-making, and now you're just treating God like He's some sort of magic genie in a bottle. And God does not appreciate being used and abused in that type of way. So God's will affects every decision we make in some level, and it starts with making the Word of God and the will of God a priority every day, every week. Point number seven, if a person is to do everything to the glory of God, then that means even the most minute decision demands some level of attention. Now, I'm not saying that every minute decision relates to, well, is this God's perfect will or not? But every decision in some sense fits within the fact that is this God's moral will? Am I doing this out of self-centered purposes or arrogance? Am I doing this to serve the Lord? Is my basic desire here to glorify God or not? And that can affect everything that we do in life. Point number eight, since we can only know the specifics of God's revealed or moral will before the fact, questions about the will of God relate only to revealed information. 
You say, what's God's will for my life? Well, we have to start with revealed information. God's not speaking to us anymore in terms of giving specific revelation. So what we have to focus on is knowing what God has said. And there's a tremendous amount that God says in Scripture. He gives tremendous guidance uh, in every, uh, in many decisions and crucial decisions in life. And many of these are in passages such as Proverbs. And this is the thing in the Old Testament. You have a series of Old Testament books that are called Wisdom Literature. Wisdom Literature. Proverbs, Song of Solomon, uh, Ecclesiastes, Job. These are called Wisdom Literature. Why? Because they deal with very practical issues in life and how to think about those practical issues within a divine viewpoint framework. See, what I find is if you have really allowed yourself to have your thinking transformed by the Word of God so that you think about life from within this framework of a divine viewpoint, then what happens is decisions aren't that difficult to make because you're, you're looking at life, you're looking at situations on the basis of God's Word. This, this has, has saturated your soul. But if you're not, if you're a young believer or if you're a carnal believer, then decisions are difficult. In fact, what I find in a lot of situations is when Christians start talking about the fact that something is a really, really difficult decision, it's usually because they're struggling between their arrogant, selfish desire and what they sense at some level God wants them to do. Now, that's not always true, but often it is. And if, if you think that God, that, that the right thing is choice X, but you really, really, really want to do choice A, then you end up having a real struggle in making that decision. But if your desire is to serve the Lord, then, and, and you, you get that self-centeredness out of the way, then when the Lord guides through circumstances, and He does guide through circumstances, just as He guided in my decision to come up here through circumstances, when certain circumstances become apparent that it's God's will, it's just like, oh, okay, this isn't a factor anymore. I remember wrestling with the decision to come here, but once God made certain things clear in terms of circumstances, it was a no-brainer. There was no struggle there anymore. But when there was an element at the beginning where, oh, I don't want to move, I don't want to go through all that hassle, I certainly don't want to go north of the Mason-Dixon line, those people talk funny up there. You know, when you get your own personal desire out of the way, suddenly it's not such a struggle anymore to make, a, make the right decision. God guides and directs. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. That's your limited frame of reference based on empiricism and rationalism. Trust in the Lord. That means put doctrine first with all your heart. Heart is where the doctrine is stored in your soul. And all your ways acknowledge Him. Is that your ultimate motivation? You want to do this simply because of your own personal comfort, personal desire, self-centered motivation, or do you really want to serve the Lord? And what happens? He will make your path straight, Proverbs 3, 6. He makes your path straight. That means that if your attitude is God first, I want to glorify Him, doctrine first, I'm taking in the Word of God, that's my priority, then even when you make the wrong decision, like Paul, to go to Asia or Bithynia, what happens? God straightened out his path. When, when Paul came along and decided, and I think he was stubborn in his resolve to go to Jerusalem instead of to go to Rome, what happens? Well, God has to work out the circumstances, so he gets arrested and taken to Rome in chains. But see, God straightened out his path and got him there. In other words, even if you make the wrong decision, God's going to get you in the right place. Now, if you want to be stubborn in the wrong decision, then it may take a little longer and you may not get there of your own volition. You may be dragged there in chains, so to speak. But God will make your path straight. Now, point number nine. Well, we'll stop there. We've got the first eight points. The next Six or seven points all deal with evaluation of different situations of decision-making in the Scripture. 
We need to look at Jonah. We need to look at some other issues in Acts related to Peter uh, and some other passages, and we don't have time to do that, so we'll conclude now and stop at point nine and come back there, uh, start with point nine next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to look at your word. It is in your light that we see light. It is your word that illuminates us as to the decisions that we should make in life. Father, we pray that we would understand that the starting point for knowing your will is to know your word and to make that the priority in our life, to know your word, to be filled with your word through the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit and to be in fellowship. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain about their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Right now, right where you sit, you can make a decision that determines your eternal destiny. That is to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. If you trust in Him and Him alone, you have eternal salvation. At that instant, you're justified, you're regenerated, and you have eternal life. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.